Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azigawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azigawe. Today is Saturday, uh, March 2nd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. And uh, March is Women's History Month, uh, International Women's History Month. And uh, we're featuring a series of programs that honor the contributions of uh, African women around the world. And uh, later on, uh, we will hear uh, in our program segments on some of the leading 19th and 20th century African-American women leaders who were involved in the movements for gender equality, voting rights against racism and national oppression. Some of the personalities we will discuss are Arthur B. Wells Barnett, uh, the anti-lynching, anti-racist, freedom fighter, journalist, public intellectual, and Fannie Barrier Williams, uh, also a prominent figure uh, during uh, the late 19th century and early 20th century, among others. And uh, right now we want to move into our musical interlude. And, of course, uh, we're going to feature uh, M. Kaltum, uh Film Festival. M. Kaltum, of course, one of the legendary uh, African-Egyptian uh, vocalists. Uh, she, of course, uh, had been dubbed as the Star of the East, a native Egypt, Kaltum uh, is a national icon. She has been dubbed as the voice of Egypt and Egypt's fourth pyramid. In 2023, uh, Rolling Stone magazine in the United States ranked uh, Um Kaltum as number 61 on this list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. Um Kaltum was born in the village of Tameh, a Zakara, uh, belonging to the city of Senbil. Wahlin and in the Dakalia governorate uh, in the Nile Delta to a family with a religious background as her father Ibrahim El Said El Beltagi uh, was a imam from the Egyptian countryside. Uh, she learned how to sing by listening to her father teach her older brother uh, Khalid. From a young age she showed exceptional singing talent. Through her father she learned to recite uh, the Quran as she reportedly memorized the entire book. Her grandfather was also a well-known reader of the Quran, and she remembered how the villagers used to listen to him when he recited the Quran. When she was 12 years old, uh, having noticed her strength in singing, her father uh, asked her to join the family ensemble, upon which she joined as a supporting voice, at the beginning just repeating what the others sang. On stage, she wore a boy's cloak and a Bedouin head covering in order to alleviate her father's uh, anxiety about her reputation and public performance. At the age of 16, she was noticed by Muhammad Abu Al-Ella, a modestly famous singer, who taught her the old classical Arabic repertoire. A few years later, she met the famous composer and artist uh, Zakaria Ahmed, who took her to Cairo. Although she made several visits to Cairo in the early 1920s, She waited until 1923 before permanently moving there. She was invited on several occasions to the home of Amin Bey al-Makdi, who taught her to play the oud, a type of lute. 
She developed a close relationship with uh, Rahira Al-Makti, I mean daughter, and became her closest friend. Um Kaltum even attended Rahia Scorda's wedding, although she ordinarily preferred not to appear in public off stage. And that's just some of the uh, biographical background of uh, Um Kaltum. We'll have more later. Let's listen uh, to uh, the voice of Um Kaltum, the star of the East. This is from 1966, a live concert in Cairo, Egypt. الشاعر مامون الشناوي ومن ألحان الموسيقار الشاب بليغ حمدي هذه الأغنية التي تقول من بين كلماتها خذ من عمري عمري كله إلا ثواني أشوفك فيها وهي الأغنية التي قدمت لأول مرة كما نذكر جميعا في الاحتفال بعيدنا القومي في 23 يوليو من العام الماضي ثم غنتها كوكب الشرق للمرة الثانية في أولى حفلاتها لهذا الموسم وها هي تقدمها لكم الليلة مرة أخرى وهكذا تكتمل سهرتنا بهذه الألوان التي يجمع بينها جميعا أنها قمة في الأداء وقمة في الشعر وقمة الموسيقى تهتز الستار وينفرج عن كوكب الشرق ام كلثوم لتقدم لنا وصلتها الثالثة والاخيرة في سهرة الليلة وتغني فيها بعيد عنك حياة العذاب سيداتي وسادتي انتم والحب انتم وام كلثوم
Oh, it's true. 
هكذا سادتي وسادتي تصل سهرتنا الى نهايتها هذه السهرة التي بدأت في الساعة العاشرة من مساء امس وها هي تنتهي والساعة توشك ان تقترب من الثالثة والنصف من صباح اليوم الجديد ساعات مضت كدقائق ولكنها ستبقى وستبقى ذكرياتها اعواما واعواما طويلة فمع كل شدو لام كلثوم يختزن القلب مزيدا من الذكريات ويغمر الصدر المزيد من الاحساس ومن الشعور بروعتي فني واداء كوكب الشرق ام كلثوم ارجو ان تكون هذه المتعه قد نناها جميعا في كل بقعة من بقاع الوطن الكبير وبقدر ما استمتعنا بقدر ما ينطلق من قلوبنا الدعاء ان يحفظ الله لنا لامتنا العربية كوكب الشرق ام كلثوم سادتي وسادتي نحييكم في ختام هذه الليلة المباركة الطيبة ونرجو ان نلتقي مع مزيد من ليالي القاهرة مع مزيد من ليالي ام كلثوم والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Welcome back. And that was uh, Um Kaltoum and her orchestra uh, from a live concert in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, Egyptian classical music, uh, the star of the East, uh, Um Kaltoum. And uh, that was recorded uh, in 1966. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, during her early career years, she faced strong competition, uh, Um Kaltoum, from two prominent singers. Monira El Madia and Fatia Ahmad, who had similar voices. El Madia's friend, who worked as an editor at El Masra, several times suggested that Um Kaltoum must have married one of the guests uh, who frequently visited her household to the extent that her father decided to return to the village they came from together with the family. Her father would only change his mind upon the persuasive arguments of Amin El Makti, Following Um Kaltoum's uh, made a public statement regarding visits to her household, uh, which she announced she would no longer receive visitors. In 1923, she struck a contract with Odeon Records, uh, which by 1926 would pay her for more than more than any other Egyptian musical artist per record. Amin El Makdi invited her into the cultural circles in Cairo. In 1924, she was introduced to the poet. Ahmed Rami, uh, who was to write 137 songs for her and also introduced her to the French literature, eventually becoming her head mentor in the Arabic literature and literary analysis. In 1926, she left Odeon Records for Gramophone Records, uh, who would pay her about double per record and even an additional $10,000 salary. She also maintained a tightly managed public image, which undoubtedly added to her allure. Furthermore, she was introduced to the renowned Oud Virtuoso and composer 
Mohammed El Kusabgi, uh, who introduced her to the Arabic Theater Palace, where she would experience her first real public success. Uh, other musicians uh, who influenced uh, her musical performance at the time were Daoud Hasni or Abu Al Allah Muhammad. Al Allah uh, Muhammad uh, instructed her in the control of her voice and variants uh, uh, of the Arabic uh, Muwa Shasha. By 1930, she was so well known to the public uh, that she was the example to follow for several young female singers. In 1932, uh, she embarked upon a major tour of the Middle East and North Africa, performing in prominent Arab capital cities such as Damascus, Baghdad, Beirut, Rabat, Tunis, and finally Tripoli. In 1934, Um Kaltum sang uh, for the inaugural broadcast of Radio Cairo, the state station. Uh, from then onwards, she performed at a concert every first Thursday of a month for 40 straight years. Her influence kept growing and expanding beyond the artistic scene. The reigning royal family would request private concerts and even attend her public performance. And uh, that was just uh, a brief glimpse of the early phase of the life and times and contributions and career of Um Kaltum. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And March is International Women's History Month. And we're going to be focusing on some of the outstanding and more well-known women of African descent. Uh, around uh, in the United States and around the world. And uh, right now we're going to take a brief break and we'll go into our women's history programming. Let's listen uh, to uh, the music of Etta James. And this is the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday of March the 2nd of 2024. Parked outside 
if I had any pride left at all. of uh, Etta James uh, doing the track entitled If I Had Any Pride Left and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast on this Saturday, uh, March 2nd, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we want to move into our additional uh, Women's History Month programming uh, with a story uh, related to the lifetimes and contributions of Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett, the anti-lynching, anti-racist, feminist, suffragette. Let's listen uh, to uh, this report. Coming up, she was the ultimate agitator and feared because of it. As racial terror reigned over the South, there were close to 200 lynchings in Tennessee alone. A young African-American woman struck back with her pen. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. She says, I'm going to challenge you on this threadbare lie that African-American men are lynched because they rape white women. She fled to Chicago, where she emerged as a radical black leader. There was never a time when Ida B. Wells was not getting pushed back, especially so in Chicago. And became an inspiration to a new generation. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter is addressing the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Ida B. Wells, next on Chicago Stories. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago Stories special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. 
Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe, Strategic Growth and Transformation Partners, and by the following donors. It seemed the entire world had come to Chicago in the summer of 1893. Most were so captivated by what they saw at the World's Fair, they were oblivious to what was missing. For one visitor, a 31-year-old African-American woman from Mississippi, the omission was glaring. The fair itself was a monument to extravagance, Building after building constructed to display to the world how far America had advanced. Ida B. Wells had come to Chicago to point out what the fair's organizers had ignored. She was angry about the exclusion of the African-American story, especially the progress that African-Americans had made. Post-slavery, African-Americans started doing a lot of phenomenal things. They were elected to Congress. Um, they were elected to public offices locally. They became doctors and business people. But the signs of black culture Ida B. Wells found at the fair were mostly along the midway, and they represented stereotypes, not progress. Nancy Green, a 59-year-old former enslaved woman, proved a crowd favorite playing the role of a southern mammy to promote a new pancake mix. Non-white nations were presented as savages or even sideshow acts. The slight was all the more appalling to Ida because she herself was a testament to the strides made by slavery survivors. Since her emancipation, she had become a widely published journalist. So it's like, let's show the world what a great country we are without showing any of the contributions of black Americans. Ida's friend, Frederick Douglass, was the notable exception. He was the only black American in charge of a pavilion, one built by the nation of Haiti. The Haitian government are the ones that invited him. So he wasn't even invited by the United States. And he was one of the most famous you know, people in the country at that time. The irony didn't escape Ida B. Wells. It seems strange to me that but for an accident, Mr. Douglas would have had no part in the World's Fair because of race prejudice in this country. Yet whenever he went out into the grounds, he was literally swamped by white persons who wanted to shake his hand. And so, Ida stood at the entrance to the Haitian Pavilion, handing out copies of a pamphlet. A clear, plain statement of facts concerning the oppression put upon the colored people in this land of the free and home of the brave. It's around 90 pages. It's really like a little book. And Ida's the only woman <laughs> represented in the book. Wells had written it with Douglas and two other men. She's also the one who raised the majority of the money um, to have the pamphlet published. So you have these three men that are willing to sort of be led by a woman. So this to me is her publication. 
the exhibit of progress made by a race in 25 years of freedom against 250 years of slavery would have been the greatest tribute to the greatness and progressiveness of American institutions, which could have been shown the world. The preface was written in English, French, and German. She was standing in front of the Haitian pavilion every single day, handing out the pamphlet with the idea that people would go from this fair all over the world and say, what the heck is going on in the United States? It was simply savvy strategy, and uh, Ida was a savvy woman. Ida B. Wells' battles at the World's Fair were just getting started. But if there was one thing she had shown in her 31 years before coming to Chicago, she never went down without a fight. Ida Bell Wells was born into slavery six months before emancipation in Holly Springs, Mississippi, to James and Lizzie Wells. James was actually the product of the slave owner going into slave quarters. So, allegedly, he did receive better treatment than other slaves. Lizzie was one of ten children. All of them were parceled out and sold, sold to different places, and she didn't see her siblings after that happened. When freedom came... Ida and her parents remained on the estate of their former enslaver, and James continued to work there. But now, he was paid for his labor. There was extreme ambition during this period. African Americans were really committed to moving into the mainstream of American life as quickly as possible, with as many skills as they could acquire. James Wells joined the board of trustees of the newly founded Rust College. Ida's mother attended school alongside her eight children until she could read. James had, you know, friends of his come over to the house and they would read the newspaper. They asked Ida to read the newspaper to them because, you know, a lot of people were not literate. Ida B. Wells doesn't come out of nowhere. She had parents who were very excited about their newfound freedom. And she observed her father, especially his political activism. I heard the words Ku Klux Klan long before I knew what they meant. I knew dimly that it meant something fearful by the anxious way my mother walked the floor at night when my father was out to a political meeting. Four years after emancipation, her father got his first opportunity to vote. Suddenly, James Wells found himself at odds with his now employer. He challenged even his employer, who demanded that James Wells vote on the Democratic ticket, and James Wells refused. And then he found that his former master had locked him out of the shop where he was working, and James Wells didn't argue with him. He just went town, bought a new set of tools, and opened up a new trade as a carpenter. There was optimism and hope as far as every citizen is, is entitled to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And Ida took that seriously. But Ida's world would be turned upside down when she was 16 years old. It was the summer she left home to visit her grandmother's farm. There was an epidemic of, of yellow fever that went throughout the country, and particularly in the South. 
She knew that people had fled Holly Springs and assumed that her parents and siblings were among those people. But then one day some people came to her grandmother's farm and handed her a note saying that both of her parents had died. Ida was 16 years old at the time and against her grandmother and several other people's um, advice, she decided to get on a train and go back to Holly Springs. She returned to find that her youngest brother had also died. Well-meaning charity workers were already there and busy making plans. There was talk of how different people were going to take different responsibility for Ida's siblings. And Ida was like, no, you know, we're not, we're not dividing the family. We don't do that. She had grown up hearing stories from her mother about being separated, sold from her family. So there was supposedly a shotgun on the mantle, and she got the shotgun. I was like, look, I'm going to take care of family. Like, oh, why didn't you say so? Sixteen-year-old Ida found work as a teacher and took on the role of breadwinner with the help of her grandmother. After teaching a country school all week, I came home Friday afternoon, six miles out from town, and spent the time from then until Monday morning washing clothes, cooking food, and preparing things so they could do without me until the end of the next week. Ida's Aunt Fanny saw the family was struggling and eventually invited them to live with her. They hopped on a train bound for the big city. She moves to Memphis, and Memphis is the place to be. It's, it's a metropolitan city. It is a transportation center, even in the 1800s, for the entire world. She saw it as exciting as a young woman. We shouldn't be surprised by this. She was a shopper. <laughs> she liked to look nice. She often talks about her expenses exceeding her income, in part because she was supporting siblings. But the other part, too, is that Ida was a clothes horse. <laughs> she enjoyed shopping downtown. Although Ida had hoped to secure a teaching post in Memphis, she'd settled at a small school in Woodstock, Tennessee, a short train ride away. But a fateful ride along the Chesapeake rail line would carry her on a much different path. Just weeks after her 21st birthday, Ida boarded the morning train to Woodstock, a first-class ticket in hand. She was dressed in white gloves and a corset, carrying a parasol. She was petite. She was a little under five feet and very well-dressed, very obviously very well-spoken. During Reconstruction, Blacks had the rights. So she had written on that car several times over the, the past couple of years and was entitled to do it. She chose the seat towards the back of the first-class rail car. But minutes later, the train's conductor brusquely informed her that she was seated in the ladies' car, a fact Ida was well aware of. The conductor insisted she move to the smoking car, a lower-class carriage where men could often be found cussing and gambling. As I was in the ladies' car, I proposed to stay. He tried to drag me out of the seat, but the moment he caught hold of my arm, I fastened my teeth in the back of his hand. It took three men 
to forcibly remove her from the rail car in which uh, she put up a fight, literal fight. And when she was removed from the car, the passengers cheered. You talk about something that infuriates someone, um, that absolutely infuriated her. Ida struck back by filing suit against the railroad company. She sued the, the Chesapeake Railroad and won and was awarded $500. The judge found the railroad company had violated the law by forcing Wells to ride in a car that was separate but unequal. But the lower court's decision would not stand. The Tennessee Supreme Court essentially attacked her personally to say that she was just being disruptive, that she wasn't a lady as she pretended to be. I have firmly believed all along that the law was on our side and would, when we appeal to it, give us justice. I feel showing belief and utterly discouraged. And just now, if it were possible, would gather my race in my arms and fly away with them. When we think about the modern civil rights movement in Rosa Parks, she has the NAACP behind her. In 1884, it's just Ida B. Wells and her attorney. Ida B. Wells was starting to make a name for herself. She took a teaching job in Memphis and joined a lyceum founded by black teachers. It was a community of sort of thinkers and artists, and she actually took elocution classes which is speaking classes. Um, and in her diary, she writes about how she was like trying to scrape up the money to pay for her next lesson. And so you wonder, like, what in the world was she preparing herself for? But she was honing her skills. Each program ended with a reading from The Evening Star, a gossip-filled newspaper, which Ida called a spicy journal. She was shocked when asked to start writing for it. As Ida B. Wells first put pen to paper, she found writing to be nothing short of a revelation. She felt like she could sort of explore more of who she was and express who she was through writing, more than she ever could in teaching. I wrote in a plain, common-sense way on the things which concerned our people. Knowing that their education was limited, I never used the word of two syllables where one would serve the purpose. I signed these articles, Iola. When Ida B. Wells first starts writing, she was writing about the things that one would expect uh, a woman who's writing for a church publication to write for. But that started to change pretty early on. As a school teacher, Ida starts to document the segregation in the schools and how the black schools were not getting the same resources and the educational inequities. She wrote an article in 1889 about the Memphis school system, because, which is unfortunate because the article could be literally printed today and you wouldn't know the difference. She railed against her fellow educators. Some of these teachers had little to recommend them, save an illicit relationship with members of the school board. You have to think about the type of person who will start writing editorials and news articles about their own employer. But that's what she was doing. She did not get fired immediately. When the next school year came up, they didn't renew her contract. 
While teaching had served a practical purpose, writing was now Ida's true passion. She bought a partnership in the most radical black newspaper in Memphis, the Free Speech and Headlight, and became its editor. The paper circulation tripled. What's unique about that moment is not only is she African-American at this time, but she's also a woman. And being a woman in a Victorian America, uh, where she is essentially playing the role of what was then considered what men do. Ida B. Wells was ascending at a precarious moment. As she and other newly emancipated African-Americans made waves, white supremacist fervor flooded the South. We kind of gloss over this period as if once the South is beaten in the Civil War, uh, that all of a sudden white Southerners just acquiesce to the people whom they had enslaved now coming into power, serving in political office. That is not the case. Black freedom, black political power was always contested. And so all across the South, we saw black men, women, and children being lynched. It wasn't a secret. It wasn't considered shameful. Newspapers would advertise that a lynching was going to occur to give these crowds a chance to come and watch. One such murder would change the course of Ida's life. She was spending the week in Natchez, Mississippi on newspaper business when word came that three men had been lynched in Memphis. Calvin McDowell, Will Stewart, and Thomas Moss. Moss was like a brother to Ida. Thomas Moss and Moss's wife were essentially her best friends here in Memphis. She was so close to Thomas Moss, Tommy. Uh, she was godmother to his child. Everybody in town knew and loved Tommy, an exemplary young man. He and his wife, Betty, were the best friends I had in town. Three years before their murders, Moss and his friends had opened a store called The People's Grocery. The People's Grocery was located in South Memphis in an area that at the time was called The Curve. The Curve was a predominantly black community and so you have these three black men that decide they're going to open up a grocery store in their own community. But their new grocery put them in direct competition with William Barrett, a white store owner making money off the black community. William Barrett was infuriated, like, how can these people take business away from him? What started as an innocent game of marbles outside the people's grocery grew heated. And the interesting part is this was an integrated game of marble with white children, white boys, and, and black boys. There was a fight, and eventually uh, adults uh, joined into this skirmish. The white store owner was injured. He convinced the county sheriff to deputize him and gathered a posse. They came late at night, this group of white men, the people, grocery owners, including Thomas Moss. They knew that they were coming. They, they had gotten word. So they were prepared for this, and they armed themselves, and they were in the store when they got there. And that was a, that was a fight. Several white deputies were wounded. The headlines talked about rounding up every Negro that was involved. Ida's friend Thomas Moss was arrested with Will Stewart and Calvin McDowell and held at the Shelby County Jail. But then a lynch mob decided that they were going to 
exact their own uh, justice. And so they went to the jail and took them to a sort of a rail yard north of there and killed them. Shot them, beat them, um, just lynched them. I do think that we should take a second and really explicate what that word means. Lynching was not simply tying a rope around someone's neck and hanging them, though that is uh, brutal um, and inhumane enough. Lynching was designed directly to send a message to the larger black population. In the South, in many places, black people were in the majority. So how does a white minority that has lost power and wants to gain that power back uh, do that when they are in the minority? It was through terrorism. Lynching had become a common and accepted punishment for black men who had allegedly raped white women. But now Ida B. Wells, who'd grown accustomed to the brutality of Southern justice, began to wonder. Like many another person who had read of lynching in the South, I had accepted the idea meant to be conveyed. That although lynching was irregular and contrary to law and order, unreasoning anger over the terrible crime of rape led to the lynching. That perhaps the brute deserved death anyhow, and the mob was justified in taking his life. After Thomas Moss, who really was lynched because he was competing with a white business owner, something clicks in Ida, uh, a vengeful spirit, I think. And she decides that she's going to focus on the lie of lynching really for the rest of her career. Ida set out in search of the truth. Notebook in hand, she traveled across the South, interviewing eyewitnesses. There was no grasp of exactly how many black people were being lynched. She would find uh, where lynchings were occurring by looking through white newspapers. And she began to keep, basically, spreadsheets. Of the 728 murders she investigated, Wells found that only a third of the victims had actually been accused of crimes. She sat down to pen a blistering editorial. Eight Negroes lynched since the last issue of the free speech. Three were charged with killing white men and five with raping white women. Nobody in this section believes the old threadbare lie that Negro men assault white women. Her writing was uh, used to create a sense of outrage and uh, every word was chosen for that matter. Her writing had this simmering rage. She was writing not just to inform, but to shame. If Southern white men are not careful, they will overreach themselves and a conclusion will be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. Within days, Edward Ward Carmack, editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, reprinted Ida's editorial. And she got the attention of the white community and certainly the white press. Unaware that the author of the editorial was a woman, Carmack called on the men of Memphis to avenge the honor of Southern ladies. Quote, The black wretch who had written that foul lie should be tied to a stake at the corner of Main and Madison Streets. A pair of tailor's shears used on him, and he should then be burned at a stake. 
the white community of Memphis was outraged. A mob of angry whites converged on the offices of the Free Speech on Beale Street. Finding the newspaper deserted, they demolished the presses and destroyed the offices. But by then, Ida B. Wells had already fled Memphis. By the time Ida arrived in Chicago for the World's Fair, she had been traveling more than a year. She had lost everything at age 30. Not only her physical property and her printing press, but also her friends, which is no small thing. Having lost my paper, had a price put on my life, and been made an exile from home for hinting at the truth, I felt that I owed it to myself and to my race to tell the whole truth now that I was where I could do so freely. Ida B. Wells circulated 10,000 copies of The Reason Why the Colored American is Not in the World's Columbian Exposition. Her plea for inclusion was largely ignored. Though the fair's organizers made one token concession, August 25th was designated Colored American Day. Frederick Douglass arranged the program, but Ida refused to even attend. We resented this stop to our pride in this belated way, and we thought Mr. Douglass ought not to have accepted. I was among those who differed with our grand old man. But Ida had another mission at the World's Fair. With the eyes of the world on Chicago, she would use the international stage to expose the terror of lynching. She was probably more looking at it as an amazing opportunity to get the message out and hit thousands of people all at the same time from all over the world. Her message was growing more militant, sharpened through her internationally published works Southern Horrors and A Red Record. She pulled no punches in describing how armed blacks had beaten back lynch mobs. The lesson this teaches, and which every Afro-American should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. I would call Ida B. Wells someone who was very comfortable hanging out in the left, you know, which, which was not very comfortable for people who were sort of straddling the middle or to the right. At the close of the World's Fair, Ida B. Wells set out to find allies for her anti-lynching campaign. For a year, she crossed the globe. Her motivating factor was to inform the world about how this country was treating its own citizens. If you're going to go to the root of the problem, you've got to find support among uh, whites. So she was uh, very good at building allies and very strategic. By the time Ida returned to Chicago in 1895, she'd been a refugee from the South for three years. Despite her many successes, she was financially strained and weary, in need of an anchor. She found just that in Ferdinand Barnett. He was 
10 years older than, than Ida when they got married, so that would have made him 43. Ferdinand was a widower. He liked strong black women. He met Ida, he was like, yeah, um, we're going to need to get married. <laughs> His first contact with Ida B. Wells is because she needs a lawyer. Frederick Douglass recommends Ferdinand Barnett. Barnett was the third African-American lawyer admitted to the Illinois bar and the owner of Chicago's first black newspaper, The Conservator. Their wedding was announced in black newspapers nationwide and in a highly unusual move in the New York Times. This was the same newspaper that a few years earlier had called Ida a slanderous and nasty-minded mulatress because of her writing about lynchings. And now her wedding announcement occurs in that very same paper, the New York Times, the paper of record. Wells took the hyphenated name Ida B. Wells Barnett, and she also took over Ferdinand's newspaper. Having always been busy at some work of my own, I decided to continue work as a journalist, for this was my first, and might be said, my only love. The conservator circulation of about a thousand readers represented a healthy chunk of Chicago's roughly 6,000 African Americans. But the city's black population was growing. Ida B. Wells and two dozen more arrive in Chicago in the 1890s and thus put themselves in a position to be the institution builders of black Chicago. Ida and Ferdinand lived alongside most of the city's African Americans in a narrow strip of Southside land known as the Black Belt. Its boundaries were often enforced by violence. If you go west of State Street, you're in the stockyards community, a largely Irish community, and you're likely to get beaten or killed. You're not going to move too far east because middle-class whites don't want you there. And they certainly don't want you on the lakefront. So it's about four blocks wide, but it keeps moving southward. This will be the hub of the African-American community. And what's important here is that it is entirely self-sufficient. African-Americans find employment within their own community. African-Americans build businesses, newspapers, their political leadership. African-Americans are virtually institutionally complete within these southward migrating communities. Uh, which came to be called Black Metropolis. Ida took delight in the community's cultural riches. There were churches, Olivet Baptist, Bethel AME, and Quinn Chapel AME. And there were black social organizations. Ida B. Wells Barnett took her place among the cream of the 400, a social registry of Chicago's black elite. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand Barnett were the political power couple, certainly in the African-American community in Chicago. The couple gave birth to their first child, Charles, in 1896. Ferdinand hired a nurse so Ida could return to the lecture circuit with their newborn baby. Ferdinand was attracted to the fact that she was out there doing things and he provided 
the support for her to continue doing that. I honestly believe that I am the only woman in the United States who ever traveled throughout the country with a nursing baby to make political speeches. The following year, Ida gave birth to Herman, then Ida Jr., and finally Alfreda in quick succession. This is a woman who's quite aware of the sacrifices she was making as a mother and the sacrifices her children had to make because she was often on the road. While Ida B. Wells Barnett continued to shine a light on injustice through journalism, she also started looking to politics as an agent for change. In this new arena, she faced the same obstacle as every other American woman. She could not vote. So instead, women like Wells made their voices heard through women's clubs. These were enormously popular and also beginning to be very influential and powerful. They were really the, the means by which women could have some influence in society. Ida helped found the League of Colored Women. Her supporters even created an Ida B. Wells Club. The women's clubs were an opportunity for women to pursue some self-education. And then they began to move from there into improving education for children, beginning kindergartens, beginning libraries, and ultimately to lobby government about getting the right to vote. As Ida B. Wells Barnett found opportunities in Chicago's civic life, she now started urging Southern blacks to flee north as she had. Literally, she told people in the South, like, look, come north. It's, it's not perfect. I'm telling you it's not perfect, but it's way better than what you're experiencing. And so people would come. Because the new migrants had only one neighborhood to choose, the Black Belt was swelling. The beating heart of the Black Belt was now a strip of South State Street known as the Stroll. This was where the action took place. There were juke joints, restaurants, hidden gambling dens, and people constantly walking or promenading from about 2,700 South down to about 3,500 South. And so people could prominently show off their clothes, their gait. You didn't walk, you strutted. But cracks were forming in the Black Belt. As new migrants met up against the forces of segregation, housing became scarce and crowded. The Barnetts refused to be contained. They moved to a new home at 3234 Rhodes Avenue, making them one of the first black families to move east of State Street. Ida B. Wells was known to keep a gun in the house for protection. The political statement that they're gonna live anywhere they can, people I got to be Wells, we're committed to the idea that segregation in any form was a insult to African Americans. The Southern migrants still stuck in the Black Belt were often viewed as outsiders in their own community. Hordes of ignorant and dissolute, said one white reformer, to describe the Southern blacks who, quote, lowered the standard of the colored population in our midst. 
To distance themselves from such insult, longtime black Chicagoans formed a society limited to those who could prove their families had lived in the city at least 30 years. They called themselves the Old Settlers Club. Many of the old settlers are successful largely because of relations they've established with wealthy whites. These African-Americans find the new African-Americans as a threat to their leadership. They're not as polished. They're not as mannered. Uh, as somebody once told me, the problem is they didn't work for white people. Ida B. Wells would make it clear which side of this social divide she stood on in 1906. She had been elected to organize a charity ball for the Frederick Douglass Center, built in memory of her old friend who had passed. The previous year's gala had been held at the prestigious Masonic Temple downtown. But Ida instead set her sights on the boisterous stroll and a rich Southside hustler named Robert T. Motts. Now, Robert T. Motts was a gambler, fairly shady person. But Robert Motts went to Paris, discovered Parisian entertainment, decided that his community needed something like that. A place where African-Americans could put on plays, uh, write comedies, enjoy African-American music. Motts already had the location, a disreputable saloon in the heart of the stroll. Robert T. Motts, however, he gained his money, was rich. And so he had the money to invest in something that he could be proud of. Motts Peking Theater was his chance to turn over a new leaf. When he gave Ida B. Wells a tour, she saw the makings of a first-class establishment. The place was beautiful. She thought it provided class because it moved him away from selling booze. She liked the idea that it provided an opportunity to see African-American artistic excellence. I felt that the race owed Mr. Motts a debt of gratitude for giving us a theater in which we could sit anywhere we chose without any restrictions. When Ida announced her event will be held at the Peking, many in black high society were outraged. Citing Mott's reputation, the Chicago Daily News refused to even print the announcement. But the loudest assault came from the neighborhood churches. African-American minister spearheaded by Archibald Carey Sr., campaigned against holding an event for the African-American elite in a place like the New Pekin Theater. He, he gave sermons about it. Not only at his own church, he gave sermons at other churches. Ida B. Wells hated hypocrisy. She'd been a member of Bethel AME, and she remembers when a former pastor had been guilty of inappropriate relations with members of his congregation and had been expelled only to be brought back with the support of people like Archibald Carey. Ida moved ahead with her charity ball and despite threats of a boycott, it raised $500. It was eminently successful. It cemented a friendship between Robert T. Motts and Ida B. Wells until his death. The Peking was the first black-owned theater in Chicago. It would give the city some of its first taste of ragtime, making way for other jazz clubs on the stroll, 
where the likes of Louis Armstrong and Cab Calloway played. And Ida B. Wells had supported it, despite the objections of African-American leaders. She challenged the black elite. She challenged the black political organization. She challenged white leadership. But she was willing to step on toes because she had a larger purpose. The black migration from the South that exposed fault lines in Chicago was also ratcheting up tensions across America. In 1908, the nation saw more than 80 lynchings in every corner of the country. It happens in the Northeast. We hear a lot less about lynchings, but of course, wherever black people go, lynching follows as a tool of social control. A lynching in Springfield, Illinois that summer would once again change the course of Ida B. Wells' career. In Abraham Lincoln's hometown, two black men were jailed. One accused of murdering a white man, the other falsely charged with the rape of a white woman. A lynch mob of roughly 5,000 whites assembled. They stormed the east side of the city where blacks lived, lynching innocent men and burning the neighborhood to cinders. At least seven people were killed before the Illinois Guard brought the riot under control. I had such a feeling of impotency through the whole matter, which seemed to be becoming as bad in Illinois as it had hitherto been in Georgia. The following Sunday, Wells was hosting her weekly Bible study for young men when the conversation turned to the horrific events in Springfield. The young people she was meeting with were so appalled by the violence that took place. The nature of those meetings goes from being um, more about their faith and more and more about what they can do about racial oppression. They continue to meet every Sunday, calling themselves the Negro Fellowship League. And the group turned its attention to the needs of black men who had come north in search of opportunity, only to lose their way on the stroll. The stroll could have a negative effect on the life of a young male migrant. Because beyond the cigar shop along State Street, beyond the outer doors in the back was a place where you could gamble. Ida's friend Jane Adams had been concerned with the plight of immigrant women and children and she had created Hull House to serve them. But there was nowhere for young African-American men to turn for help. They weren't welcome at institutions like the YMCA. All other races in the city are welcomed into settlements. YMCAs, YWCAs, gymnasiums, and every other movement for uplift if only their skins are white. Only one social center welcomes the Negro, and that is the saloon. Being from the South, she knew what kind of conditions people were coming from. I think she felt like she could relate to them on a personal level. Her dream, you know, was to create sort of the black hole house, if you want to call it that. Ida B. Wells unexpectedly found a sponsor for her vision at a Palmer House luncheon. Jessie Lawson was the wife of the wealthy editor of the Chicago Daily News. The Lawsons, who were donors to the YMCA, were unaware that it was not serving blacks in Chicago. 
Ida told Jesse Lawson about her dreams for the Negro Fellowship League, and they set out to find a location. That location in her mind had to be in the midst of where the greatest need lay. And that was along State Street at the north end of the stroll. Ida B. Wells Barnett opened the Negro Fellowship League on a warm Sunday with a program for the neighborhood. As the room filled, they left the back door open to let in the breeze. But before long, the program was interrupted by the boisterous sounds of a group of drunken men outside, shooting dice with a pail of beef. Rather than call the police, Wells set out to invite them to the next Sunday meeting. And so when she goes into the alley to talk to those men who are drinking and, and playing dice, you know, she, she doesn't have any airs about her. Wells recalled their surprise when she extended her white-gloved hand to shake on their promise to return. They all said they didn't want to dirty my white gloves by shaking hands, but reiterated that they would go away and also repeated their promise to come next Sunday. There were black people who were from, quote, upper class who wouldn't even come visit the center because it was in a location that they didn't feel comfortable visiting. My great-grandparents were unique. They were both educated, but at the same time, they were willing to go into the hood. <laughs> Ida had built a beacon on the stroll, a place where men could find jobs, housing, legal help, and moral upliftment. I think she felt a tremendous responsibility. She's telling black folks, leave the South, and yet she's seeing people come and they are suffering, and no one is looking out for them, not even other black Chicagoans. But Ida B. Wells would feel the impact of that awful Springfield riot in another way. In the riot's wake, Ida and other activists received an invitation from Oswald Garrison Villard, grandson of the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. His letter, known as The Call, proposed a conference to discuss present evils. The following spring, luminaries like W.E.B. Du Bois and Jane Addams gathered in New York. On the first day of the conference, Ida B. Wells Barnett delivered a forceful speech on her 20 years of lynching research. This is what Ida B. Wells was doing around the issue of lynching. She takes lynching from a fringe issue that no one really, black or white, will touch, and she turns it into a central issue. At the close of the conference, the activists agreed to start a new organization. It would become known as the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Although Ida was initially chosen to be on the NAACP's founding committee, as a last minute, Du Bois substituted her name. My guess is that people like W.B. Du Bois were sexist. And I think we have to call that. He did not promote easily African-American female leadership. Secondly, the leadership of the NAACP from the beginning largely addressed to the African-American middle class and to the African-American upper middle class. 
But Ida B. Wells' campaigns had become increasingly geared toward the poorest of the poor. And despite her impassioned speech about lynching, the NAACP was not ready to confront the crisis she'd dedicated her career to. The NAACP, which Ida helped co-found, even though she doesn't often get the, the name recognition and credit for that, didn't want to touch that issue. It was something about the ideas that Ida had about, for example, lynching having its base in sexual relations. It was their thought that uh, this was a no-no. This, in fact, was something blacks like Du Bois wouldn't approach because he knew that white people would be offended by this discussion. Ida B. Wells, now 50 years removed from slavery, still did not have the power to vote. But she has joined Illinois women in a partial victory. In June of 1913, women in Illinois can vote in the presidential election and they can vote in local municipal elections, but they cannot vote, for example, for governor or for senator. Encouraged, Ida B. Wells took up the suffrage cause with new fervor. Noting that white suffragists were working like beavers, she established the Alpha Suffrage Club. Their slogan, race interest first, last, and all the time. The club mobilized black women in the Black Belt Second Ward and eventually helped elect Chicago's first black alderman. Those are ordinary women, not the high-faluting uh, black women of Chicago. Ordinary women were told they had worth and could make a change in society. That spring, Ida B. Wells set her sights on Washington, D.C., on the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, she boarded a train bound for the National Suffrage Parade. Wells travels with the Illinois delegation. She gets to Washington, D.C. There are state delegations from all over the United States, and Illinois is very large. They've got drum majors. Wells and 250,000 women approached Pennsylvania Avenue. But Alice Paul, the lead parade planner, had a last-minute concern. Southern white women wouldn't march if they had to do so alongside black women. Planners suddenly asked that the black delegates march separately, in the back. Ida B. Wells Barnett was struck by the news. So Wells says, of course, I'm not going to do that. I came here with my delegation from Illinois. I intend to march with my delegation. And they march anyway, all together. And so the march is integrated. And it's just classic Wells. I mean, she stands for her principles no matter what. Though her Negro Fellowship League had now been serving men on the stroll for 10 years, Ida B. Wells was struggling to keep it afloat. Her wealthy friends admired her dedication, but wouldn't venture to the stroll and work among the uneducated, unemployed black men. I don't know if she originally thought she would be doing this work by herself. 
I think she expected and was hoping for other people to be as outraged as she was and to get in the trenches and fight. And she had never received the kind of wealthy patronage Jane Addams secured for Hull House. By the winter of 1920, the Negro Fellowship League's rent was in arrears, and Ida B. Wells was finally forced to close its doors. It is important that when we think about the strength of this black woman, when we think about the strength of black women, that we never forget that it always comes with a cost. And it certainly, um, it took a toll on her. It took a toll on her physically. When Ida B. Wells Barnett was 68 years old, she attended a book reading with her oldest daughter. The subject was a book by Carter G. Woodson, the man who created Black History Month. But Ida was dismayed to discover that her anti-lynching efforts weren't even mentioned. She met a young woman who had heard her name but didn't know what she did. That was stunning for her that she herself was not known by a new generation. So she sat down to put her story on paper. In the first pages of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells explained, the history of this entire period, which reflected glory on the race, should be known. Yet most of it is buried in oblivion. And so, because our youth are entitled to the facts of race history, which only the participants can give, I am thus led to set forth the facts. I guess it was her story, but it's also the history of our country. Ida B. Wells' unfinished autobiography ended mid-sentence. A fitting reflection, perhaps, of a woman who knew there's still more work to be done. In March of 1931, Ida B. Wells Barnett awoke with a worrisome fever. She died a few days later. She is buried next to Ferdinand Barnett, her partner for more than 30 years. Ida B. Wells and Ferdinand L. Barnett, Crusaders for Justice. Can you put it down? Yeah. I am a native Chicagoan, and there was an Ida B. Wells Holmes on the south side of Chicago. Most people had heard the name, but it got to a point where it was just a disconnect between who Ida B. Wells as a woman was and the work that she did and what people associated with her name. In February of 2019, Ida B. Wells Drive became Chicago's first street named for an African-American woman. The next year, Wells was posthumously honored with a Pulitzer Prize. New York Times writer Nicole Hannah-Jones won her Pulitzer Prize the same day. When I found out that I had won the Pulitzer on the same day as my spiritual godmother, Ida B. Wells, a woman who did not receive that type of recognition in her life and never would have, um, I cried like a baby. Recently, a multitude of young activists and justice seekers are taking up the work of Ida B. Wells. For older historians, the reason why is simple. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter is addressing 
the same issues that Ida B. Wells took up in the 1880s and 90s. Moreover, Black Lives Matter has a considerable component of black female leadership. I need for these racist systems to be dismantled. What we need is equity. What we need is recovery. They're taking to the streets. The writing essays, the organizing cadres. Black Lives Matter, women all faith, and we believe in fighting. They are addressing systemic violence more broadly than simply the issue of police brutality. I want jobs and resources in black and brown communities on the south and west sides of Chicago. Violence is caused by economic disparity, is caused by the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and that is exemplified by the city. This is Ida B. Wells. In the last and unfinished chapter of her autobiography, Ida B. Wells offered words of wisdom to future generations, writing, Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Ida B. Wells was clearly outstanding and unique. There's no doubt about that. But I think what she would say is use your talent to the best of your ability to see her life as an example of what it takes to create change and the price. But not to glorify her or make her out of reach of the actions of ordinary people. Lead support for Ida B. Wells, a Chicago Story special, is provided by the Nagani Foundation. Additional support is provided by Jim and Kay Maybe, Strategic Growth and Transformation Partners, and by the following donors. Welcome back, and that was uh, a brief uh, biographical sketch of the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who lived between 1862 and 1931. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for Saturday, March 2nd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. This is uh, International Women's History Month, and we're paying tribute uh, to uh, African women uh, who have made uh, powerful contributions to the struggle uh, for liberation and justice. Let's take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment.
Smith uh, with the classic uh, track entitled Crazy Blues. And uh, just to give you some background on the legendary Mamie Smith, uh, Mamie Smith uh, Robinson was born on May 26, 1891. Uh, she made her transition on September the 16th, 1946. She was an African-American singer. As a vaudeville singer, she performed in multiple styles, including jazz and blues. In 1920, she entered blues history as the first African-American artist to make a vocal blues recording. Willie Lillian Smith, uh, who was no relation to Mamie Smith, described the background of these recordings in his autobiography, Music on My Mind. It was published in 1964. Uh, Robinson was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1891. The year of her birth has been given as 1883 as well. But in 2018, researcher John Jeremiah Sullivan discovered her birth certificate stating she was born in Cincinnati in 1891. When she was around uh, the age of 10, she found work touring with the Four Dancing Mitchells, a white act. As a teenager, she danced in the Salem Toot Whitney Smart Set. In 1913, she left the Toot Brothers to sing in clubs in Harlem and married William Smith, a singer. On February the 14th of 1920, some 123 years ago, Smith recorded that thing called Love, and you can't keep a good man down for the OK label in New York City. After African-American songwriter and band leader Perry Bradford persuaded Fred Hager to break the color barrier in black music recordings, OK Records recording many iconic songs by black musicians, although this was the first recording by a black blues singer. The backing musicians were all white. Hager had received threats uh, from the northern and southern pressure groups saying they would boycott the company if he recorded a black singer. Despite these threats, the record was a commercial success and opened the door for more black musicians to record. Uh, Smith's biggest hit was recorded on August the 10th of 1920, when she recorded a set of songs written by Perry Bradford, including Crazy Blues, and it's right here for you. If you don't get it, take no fault of mine. Again, for OK Records, a million copies were sold in less than one year. Many were bought by African Americans, and there was a sharp rise in sales of what was then described as race records. Because of its historical significance, Crazy Blues was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1994 and was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry of the Library of Congress in 2005. That's just some background information on uh, the legendary Mamie Smith. We want to go back uh, to the lifetimes and contributions of Ida B. Wells. Uh, here is a uh, set of excerpts uh, from a panel discussion uh, that took place uh, about five years ago, six years ago, on Ida B. Wells. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, this report. This is the obituary of Ida B. Wells, published in the New York Times. It was not all that unusual when in 1892, a mob dragged Thomas Moss out of a Memphis jail in his pajamas and shot him to death over a feud that began with the game of marbles. 
But has lynching changed history because of its effect on one of the nation's most influential journalists, who was also the godmother of his first child, Ida B. Wells. Wells is considered by historians to have been the most famous black woman in the United States during her lifetime, even as she was dogged by prejudice, a disease infecting Americans from coast to coast. She pioneered reporting techniques that remain central tenets of modern journalism. And as a former slave who stood less than five feet tall, she took on structural racism more than half a century before her strategies were repurposed, often without crediting her during the 1960s civil rights movement. Wells was already a 30-year-old newspaper editor living in Memphis when she began her anti-lynching campaign, the work for which she is most famous. After Moss was killed, she set out on a reporting mission, crisscrossing the South over several months as she conducted eyewitness interviews and dug up records on dozens of similar cases. Her goal was to question a stereotype that was often used to justify lynchings, that black men were rapists. Instead, she found that in two-thirds of mob murders, uh, rape was never an accusation, and she often found evidence of what had actually been a consensual interracial relationship. She published her findings in a series of fiery editorials in the newspaper. She co-owned and edited the Memphis Free Speech in Headlight. The public, it turned out, was starved for her stories and devoured them voraciously. The journalist, a mainstream trade publication that covered the media, named her the princess of the press. Readers of her work were drawn in by her fine-tooth reporting methods and language that even by today's standard was apparently bold. There has been no word equal to it in convincing power. Frederick Douglass wrote to her in a letter that hatched their friendship. I have spoken, but my word is feeble in comparison. That's Frederick Douglass. She was referring to writing like the kind that she published in the free speech in May 1892. Wells wrote, nobody in this section of the country believes the threadbare old lie that Negro men rape white women. Instead, Wells saw lynching as a violent form of subjugation, an excuse to get rid of Negroes who were acquiring wealth and property and thus keep the race terrorized and the nigger down, she wrote in her journal. Wells was born into slavery in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862, less than a year before emancipation. She grew up during Reconstruction, Reconstruction that is, the period when black men, including her father, were able to vote, ushering black representatives into state legislatures across the South. One of eight siblings, she often tagged along to Bible school on her mother's hip. In 1878, her parents both died of yellow fever along with one of her brothers, and at 16, she took on caring for the rest of her siblings. She supported them by working as a teacher after dropping out of high school and lying about her age. She finished her own education at night and on the weekends. Around the same time, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was largely nullified by the Supreme Court, reversing many of the advancements of Reconstruction. The anti-black sentiment that grew around her was ultimately codified in Jim Crow. It felt like a dramatic whiplash, said Troy Duster, Wells' grandson, who is a sociology professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and New York University. She cuts her teeth politically in this time of justice, 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 and then injustice. Observing the changes around her, Wells decided to become a journalist during what was a golden era for black writers and editors. 
Her goal was to write about black people for black people, about black people for black people, in a way that was accessible to those who, like her, were born the property of white owners and had much to defend. Her articles were often reprinted abroad as well as in more than 200 black weeklies then in circulation in the United States. Whenever possible, Wells named the victims of racist violence and told their stories. In her journal, she lamented that her subjects would have otherwise been forgotten by all, save the night wind, no memorial service to bemoan their sad and horrible fate. Wells also organized economic boycotts long before the tactic was popularized by other, mostly male, civil rights activists who are often credited with its success. In 1883, she was forced off a train car reserved for white women. She sued the railroad and lost on appeal before the Tennessee Supreme Court, after which she urged African-Americans to avoid the trains and later to leave the South entirely. That sound familiar? I'm editorializing it. Back to the script. Okay. She also traveled to Britain to rally her cause, encouraging the British to stop purchasing American cotton and angering many white Southern business owners. Wells was fierce in conversation, was as fierce in conversation as she was in her writing, which made it difficult for her to maintain close relationships, according to her family. She criticized people, including friends and allies whom she saw as weak in their commitment to the causes she cared about. She didn't suffer fools, and she saw fools everywhere. <laughs> That's her grandson saying that. <laughs> One exception was her husband and closest confidant. Ferdinand L. Barnett, a widower who was a lawyer and a civil rights activist here in Chicago. After they married in 1895, Barrett's activism took a back seat to his wife's career. Theirs was an atypically modern relationship. He cooked dinner for the children most nights, and he cared for them while she traveled to make speeches and organize. Later in life, Wells fell from prominence, prominence as she was replaced by activists like Booker T. Washington, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who were more conservative in their tactics and thus had more support from the white and black establishments. Ta -ta -ta. She, uh, she helped to found prominent civil rights organizations, including the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, and the National Association of Colored Women, only to be edged out of their leadership. During the final years of her life, living in Chicago, Wells ran for the Illinois State Senate but lost abysmally. Despite her ebbing influence, she continued to organize around causes such as mass incarceration, working for several years as a probation officer until she died of kidney disease in March 25th, on March 25th, 1931, at the age of 68. Wells was threatened physically and rhetorically, constantly throughout her career. She was called a harlot, a courtesan. Did I even say that right? I should have read that word before I got up there. Somebody said, who, I should, I'm supposed to be a journalist, right? A courtesan? Thank you, Mama, a courtesan. I appreciate Sylvia Ewan. Thank you. <laughs> For her frankness about uh, interracial sex. Uh, after her anti-lynching editorials were published in the free speech, she was run out of the South. Her newspaper ransacked and her life threatened. But her commitment to chronicling the experience of African Americans in order to demonstrate their humanity remained unflinching. And this is a quote directly from Ida B. Wells. She says, if this work 
can contribute in any way toward proving this and at the same time arouse the conscience of the American people to demand justice to every citizen and punishment by law for the lawless, I shall feel I have done my race a service. She wrote that after fleeing Memphis. Other considerations are minor. Let's put our hands together for the legacy of Mrs. Ida B. Wells. That piece, that article is by Caitlin Dickerson, Ida B. Wells, who took on racism in the Deep House with powerful reporting on lynchings. It was published March 8th of this year after the New York Times went back and looked at all of the women and people of color and marginalized people in this country who were not properly memorialized. And they went back and wrote these obituaries. And what better way to begin our panel in this evening uh, with a round of applause Please welcome our panelists. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, it's just a great honor to be on stage with all these dynamos. Um, so we're going to talk for about 30 minutes, and then we're going to turn it over to Q&A. Um, I used to live in Bronzeville, walking distance from here, and when I was looking for my condo, I was like, okay, this is right around the corner from Robert Abbott's house, and I'm in the same neighborhood as Ida B. Wells. Like, that really meant something to me to come back to this, this neighborhood. I don't know when I first learned about her. I just think she was in my psyche being from here and then wanting to be a journalist. Um, Eve, what, what's your first memory of Ida B. Wells? You know, I think I'm like you. I don't ever remember learning about her. I feel like she's one of those people that was always in my consciousness. But I think it's special when, uh, as adults, we get to, I think it's important for us to visit and revisit the histories that we've taken for granted and the people that we thought that we knew. So I've been really enjoying, um, in the last several years, kind of revisiting my own relationship to Ida B. Wells and understanding her in a black feminist tradition, in a Chicago tradition. Um, so I feel like I'm always learning more about her. Uh, what would you say your relationship to her is now? You know, um, so if you've heard me talk this year, you know that I'm thinking a lot about ghosts and all the different places that ghosts reside. So um, Ida B. Wells uh, lived on 36th and King Drive from 1919 until 1929, and she passed in 1931. Um, and so as I've been, as I was writing Ghosts in the Schoolyard and um, thinking about Bronzeville a lot, I feel like I've been grateful for her spirit and the way that it inhabits uh, the work that we do now. Nicole? I think about this a lot, and I also cannot remember exactly. I, I have this image of sometime in elementary school, it was during Black History Month, and they put up like five black people, uh, and she was one of them. <laughs> and it was like, a, like one of those cameo-shaped, like oval-shaped photos that was on the wall, and I don't even remember how they described her. I don't know if they described her as a journalist or a civil rights activist. I just remember her name. But So I knew her name, but I didn't really know exactly what she did, which tells you how good we learned about black history. <laughs> um, 
And then I was in college, and I would just go to the college bookstore and just look at books that other professors whom I wasn't taking, I was nerdy, uh, were teaching, and I came across her memoir. And I hadn't read really any memoirs written by black women of that era. Um, and I was thinking about being a journalist, so I got the memoir. And then when I read it, I was like, holy shit, like, I didn't know that black women acted like that back then. Um, you know, to, to think of someone who's born into slavery, who is uh, living in a time where women didn't have the right to vote, black people had gotten the right to vote, but were struggling to actually use that right to vote, um, that she hyphenated her name, that she turned down all her suitors, that she marries a feminist, that she's a suffragist, that she's a civil rights activist, that she's like an investigative reporter who has the courage to like go into places where they have literally just strung black people up and killed them and ask questions. I, I mean, you just, I don't know women who would do that now necessarily. So I think it was just something about that where, um, she just all, she stuck with me ever since then because any there weren't a lot of templates uh, for what I wanted to do. I didn't grow up seeing any ideas or any uh, examples of black women investigative reporters. And sadly, I kind of had to go back to the 1800s to even have that. But if you had to go back in time, she was the most amazing one. I've also heard you refer to her as your spiritual grandmother. I do. <laughs> I finally got the blessing of the family, so now I don't have to feel the <laughs> family now. At first I was like, I somebody's going to somebody's gonna bust around and be like, stop claiming my grandmother. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I really do, you know, when, when, when her great-grandson said that she didn't suffer fools, I was like, yeah, that sounds like myself. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think about her a lot, and I really do think she guides my work because she had such a strong sense of what was right and what was wrong. And what I also loved about her, she refused, you know, she refused to be bougie, right? She, she, she was not going to separate herself from the less educated and the poor amongst her people in a way that a lot of folks, when they get some prominence, they do. And I think that's always been the model. Um, so clearly, that's why my Twitter name is Ida Bay Wells, in honor of her. Um, <laughs> I mean, I commissioned a portrait of my daughter with Ida B. Wells in the background. Like, I'm kind of obsessed You're all in. with her. I really, <laughs> all in. She was on my birthday cake two years ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's, she was just amazing. And, and I think it's been so fulfilling to see her getting some due finally, um, that people know who she is. I mean, still on Twitter, some people think my name is Ida, which I just find to be very annoying, um, <laughs> because I'm like, you still don't know who she is at this point, but I think it's been really gratifying to see that. Michelle, you grew up knowing about your, gra your great-grandmother, but not being lectured about her. You come from a, a big family, um, and four generations have tried to honor and protect and amplify who she is. Can you talk about some of those efforts um, in regards to maintaining her legacy? Right. Um, well, it has been, maintaining uh, my great-grandmother's legacy has been a family effort, and it was a family effort, it seemed like, for a very long time. Um, after, I mean, my, gra my great-grandmother died in 1931, and it was a depression. And my grandmother, her daughter, was her youngest uh, child out of four children. And my grandmother had five children. 
in the middle of the depression, and she actually became a widow. So she, it was not easy for her to raise her family and also try to make sure that her mother's legacy was known. I mean, that's just anybody who's a parent, I'm sure you can imagine that's not easy. And so, but my, my grandmother is the one out of the four children, I guess, who took the interest in trying to do what she could um, to make sure that her mother was remembered. And so my dad told me when he was growing up, he remembered his mother, who's my grandmother, working in the margins of her life in, the, in between raising five children to um, edit the manuscript of her mother's autobiography. And it finally was published in 1970 um, by the University of Chicago, so almost 40 years from the time her mother died until the uh, autobiography was published. So that's dedication for you uh, when it comes to making sure that your family is remembered, your family member is remembered. And then after the, um, after the book was published, my grandmother did a lot of, participated in a lot of um, auto, of, um, what do you call them? <laughs> um, interviews where, you, where, where, oral history, that's what I'm thinking of, oral history projects so that it could be documented also at the Schlesinger Library in, at Radcliffe. Um, their tapes, and then also um, I found one online when Studs Terkel did an interview of my grandmother, and she also did some speaking, but she was an older woman at that point. My father's generation took up the mantle after my grandmother died in 1983. Um, my parents' generation in 1988 established the Ida B. Wells Memorial Foundation, and they started off with uh, offering journalism um, awards, and then we eventually segued into giving awards to college students to help the next generation get their education at Ida's alma mater, Russ College in Holly Springs, Mississippi. They also, my father's generation, uh, were very big supporters of Paula Giddings, writing her seminal uh, biography, only 800 pages, um, of Ida's story, and they also were very involved with the documentary film that was PBS film on the American Experience series. My generation has continued the foundation. I, as a writer, uh, edited two books with my great-grandmother's original writings because I wanted to take her work out of the archives and make it available for everybody. Um, and what else? Oh my God, um, we've done a lot. Oh, there's a there's a museum, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum in Holly Springs, Mississippi, which is the house that Ida was born on that property. So if any of you ever in Memphis, it's only about a 30 minute drive south of Memphis to get to Holly Springs, and we um, we support that museum. And then the next generation after me, one of my cousins wrote a play about Ida's experience with the railroad. So that's four generations after my great-grandmother that are just continuing. And I think what, what our approach is, is not about, look at us, our family's so great, and, my great, and, our, and Ida was um, just this one person that needs to be memorialized. This is about black history, it's about American history. And we can't let other people erase us. And so that's what our family's about. 
You've also told me that there was a period where you struggled about your own identity um, and people making assumptions about who you are because this was your great-grandmother. Can you share a little bit about that journey? Well, there have been times when uh, people want to know about my great-grandmother and they want to talk to me about my great-grandmother. And they want to talk to me about my great-grandmother. And they want to talk to me about my great-grandmother. And I'm like, hello, I'm here. <laughs> like, I, I'm Michelle, you know. So there, that's been a little bit of a struggle for me, for people to see me, Michelle, not me, a vessel that, that, that's connected to the person they really want to know about. Um, so, and that, and that is, it's a continuing struggle. And... Um, it's an honor for me to be related to her, and I'm very happy that people are interested in her, and they, you know, they're, they're thirsty for knowledge. Um, but, but I'm sure most people who are related to somebody who's famous, it, it is a little bit of a um, attention of wanting people to remember who your ancestor was, but also being seen as a separate individual person. Um, a couple of years ago when people were voting in the presidential election, uh, a lot of women were making pilgrimages, a pilgrimage to Susan B. Anthony's grave. And I had a friend here email me and say, will you go with me to visit Ida B. Wells' grave right in um, Oakwood Cemetery? So we laid flowers and you know, had, had a moment. Um, we heard the, the obit, and we've, I mean, there's so many threads of her life to talk about, but let's talk about her as this black feminist icon. Can I? <laughs> you know what? I can't believe this is um, just going back to the two questions ago. I can't believe that I forgot about the monument. Oh, <laughs> we're going to talk about that. Yeah. We're going to talk about it. I'm saving oh, okay. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll pick up that thread. I mean, you know. Um, it is still a struggle for black women in 2018 in the 21st century to be recalled, remembered, and visible at the intersection of our identities, right? And um, there are still so many moments where black women are excluded or marginalized from conversations about racial justice and excluded or marginalized from conversations about gender-based justice. And it's so inspiring, but also um, instructive and frustrating to think about the legacy of Ida B. Wells and the ways in which she was um, marginalized and pushed aside by some people who we consider American heroes, um, people like Susan B. Anthony, people like W.E.B. Du Bois, who was, who was my you know, spiritual grandfather. Um, and it's frustrating to think about the fact that one of the reasons why this moment of her legacy bubbling back up has to happen is because she was actually intentionally erased from the narrative because by virtue of being a black woman mm -hmm. who insisted on the fullness of both of those identities. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, a lot of the, what we think about the, the heroes of the women's suffrage movement, um, many of those white women explicitly did not want black women to be part of the conversation because they were afraid that if we bring up this race stuff, right, it's going to complicate things and you all just need to wait till later. Let us get the vote first. 
right? And that echoes so many conversations we hear today, um, both from black men and white women around the conversations of just wait, we'll deal with y'all later, right? Without the understanding that our issues are also race issues and our issues are also gendered issues. So I think it's really important for us to uplift her existence at that intersection and to remind ourselves that um, many of the folks that we idolize also have this complicated history of erasing others and to make sure that as we look around in our contemporary moment that we don't allow other people to be erased in the same way. And when we were listening to the obit. When we were listening to the obit, they mentioned Du Bois, and who's the other person they mentioned? Booker T. Washington. Yeah, like, Du Bois. We mouthed, and they were men. Like, right. it wasn't, like, that, that wasn't explicitly said in right. the obit. It's like, oh, she was just other black, no, well, those were, those were black men. Right, right. It wasn't just that her, uh, the way it was framed in the obituary was still, um, mm-hmm. well, their tactics weren't as radical as hers, and so that's why it's like, well, you know, that's Which not is the only true. reason. Which is true. But, yeah. I mean, I think about, like, my, you think about the, the role of black women in, in the conversations that are being had even today, and the way that the media reports, women are doing this. Well, no, not black women. Um, that black women are constantly a race. We're either just lumped in as black, as if we have no gender, or we're erased altogether, which was a similar struggle that she went through. Like my, my all-time favorite story of hers is uh, with the suffragist march in Washington, D.C., where they want uh, black women to be supporting their larger movement uh, for voting rights, but then when they get to the march, because they're afraid of white Southern women want a segregated march, they tell her that they have to march in the back. So she stands on the sideline and disappears, and then when the march starts, she pushes her way to the front of the march. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that story, but it also speaks to the struggle. I, I, I was just thinking about Ida B. Wells the other day. I started an a investigative news training organization named after Ida B. Wells. And I was speaking about it, and, and we always get this question, like, why, why do you think people don't know about her? And I was like, because she is a black woman. Black women are always erased. We don't, when we think about the NAACP and its anti-lynching campaign, she is the reason the NAACP had an anti-lynching campaign, and she gets completely written well, out of why, that history. Well, that's why the NAACP was, was started. Right. But she, <laughs> right. you don't hear her at Welcome back. And uh, that was a panel discussion at a location in Chicago, Illinois, uh, where became the home of uh, the legendary Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett. And this is uh, International Women's History Month, and uh, we've had two programs so far uh, looking at the lifetimes and contributions of African-American women, uh, women of African descent, who, uh, in fact, uh, have been a monumental uh, force in world history uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. We'd like to remind our listeners that uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Saturday, March 2nd, uh, 2024, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. 
That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, our program today uh, with the music of uh, Dinah Washington. Uh, and uh, this is uh, Abayomi Azikwe signing off and have a beautiful week.